WTYT. I'm Nomi Konst in Washington, D.C. With, uh, with, I don't think I need to introduce you. We have the Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal. It's my Bible. I have notes all over. <laughs> this is my copy. Uh, also, What's the Matter with Kansas from 2004. That's when I first discovered Thomas Frank. I was also a child then. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> Just kidding. So I don't know where to begin because we've been talking for an hour and I feel like we, you missed all the great moments, but we're going we're gonna to go back to what we were discussing. Um, Listen Liberal is about the Democratic Party and how uh, the party had alienated the working people. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways. So it could have been a much longer book. <laughs> oh, <I'm laughs> you, could have added, you can do another version for this yeah, year alone. Volume two. <laughs> so where did the Democratic Party lose its way? Oh, man, come on, Nomi. Now, when, when I started writing this, by the way, and I, I would go around to my friends and say, you know, I'm going to do a book about the Democrats and where they went wrong, they would always say the same thing, which is, where are you going to begin? You know, <laughs> where are you going to start? Well, you know, for sake for, for the sake of convenience, I started where everybody else starts, which is in '68, Vietnam War. Uh, Democratic Party decides to reform itself, and one of the ways, and by the way, in a lot of the reforms that they adopted after '68 were healthful and good, but one of the ways that they reformed themselves was basically by defenestrating organized labor by. Uh, pitching organized labor out of their sort of structural position within the party. And they've never, uh, they've reformed themselves a bunch of times since then, but they've never looked back on, on that move. And it has cost them today. And today they really are, uh, some, some certain observers were saying this in 1972, but today it is undoubtedly true that the Democratic Party has become the party of the sort of affluent white collar professional class that really is who they are and everybody else that aligns themselves with the party is an afterthought to them mm -hmm. uh it's this sort of all the presumptions and by the way you're in a great place washington dc for observing the native habitat of the <laughs> white collar <laughs> professional class yeah also a swamp they're very swampy the swamp and it's 100 degrees out today so it's interesting because um you know, labor is is used for organizing people, getting people out to vote. Obviously, they represent working people, which is uh, something yeah, both parties. That, by the way, that would have been that was important last time around. I don't know if you're aware of this. Yeah. I just, <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump got that memo. The Republican Party got that memo, yeah. whether willfully or not. But I, let's talk about unions back then. I mean, why why was there so much animosity towards unions? It's not the same. You know, this is I've I've seen the movies. Uh, unions were run a little bit differently. You know, the Teamsters were run differently oh, yeah, back then. Sure. You had Hoffa. Um, so was but there an animosity believe, towards that? Well, of course, but you shouldn't believe everything you see in the movies. And you got to remember something that, that a lot of unions, unions, whether they, and a lot of them have problems and still have problems to this day. And we can go down the list. The, the, the list of problems is long and it is complicated and it is, it is somewhat depressing. And, it, and it, you know, it includes things like, you know, a, a leadership that is not particularly imaginative, uh, you know, people that are very uh, businesslike in their dealings that don't, that have forgotten that they're a social movement. Uh, but the, the thing that really, uh, that, that made the Democratic Party uh, change their mind about organized labor was the Vietnam War, and which, have you been watching the Ken Burns series? I mean, this is, tore this country in two. And organized labor, by and large, sided with the Johnson administration. They liked Lyndon Johnson. He had done great things by their, you know, by their way of looking at the world, and they were loyal to him. And uh, the Democratic Party uh, decided it wanted nothing more to do with that legacy. It wanted to turn away from that legacy. And, and uh, organized labor was sort of the, the casualty, one of the casualties of that. And it's, it is a real shame because whatever the problems of unions are, they do, at the end of the day, represent uh, – 
working people, the voices of working people. And if you want to understand what working people are thinking about, what, they, what concern, the issues that concern them, this is the organization that you go to. And by and large, Democrats don't really listen to them anymore. And that's a, you know, that would have, <laughs> I mean, I hate to put it this way, but it would have saved, saved them a whole lot of pain in 2016 had they been listening. In the meantime, unions have been weakened. It's yeah. it's not just the Democrats pushing them out of the way. You have Fox Business Network and CNBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know they've declared a war on unions. They misrepresent unions, and they're in a much weaker place. So even if Democrats did say, "Let's bring the unions back to the party," would it even make a difference? It would make a difference in one enormous, well, in several different ways. One is that uh, you know Democrats get weaker and weaker and weaker among uh, union voters uh, every four years. Um, and Hillary did. Uh, Hillary did worse than Obama did, and uh, you know, going back for the, going back into the past. But the, the important thing, and I and I have to keep emphasizing this, is that Democrats really have lost touch with the people that used to be the base of their party, which is working class Americans. And by and large, Democrats have forgotten about these people. And they take them for granted. You know, they say they they. And by the way, you've been working with with Democrat. You know, with people in the Democratic Party. I wonder if you've ever heard this phrase. They have nowhere else to go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, about staying you know. home. I mean, yeah. th- that's actually. Trump. Or or. About Trump. This is what the Democrats don't understand about Trump. When you when you look at a big part of your base and say, as the Democrats have said ever since. Bill Clinton, ever since the 1990s, ever since the great uh, uh, turn to the center in the Democratic Party, when you look at a base, at your own base, and say, they have nowhere else to go, and by the way, they say that about working class people, they say that about minorities, they say that about all these different groups, when you do that, you are asking for the other side to come in and steal those voters away from you, and the Republicans have been doing this, and they do this. Do you see how frustrated I'm getting, Naomi? Because I've been writing about this for many years. <laughs> well, the millennials get you. I know, but they still won't. Listen, I've been writing about this since, well, this isn't what's the matter with Kansas, that the, the history of the modern right is a history of fake populism. It's a history of fake populist movement after fake populist movement, after fake populist movement, after fake populist movement. We're on the what, I don't know, the nth iteration now, fifth or sixth, depending on how you count. And Democrats still can't see it coming. It's always like, Oh my God! That look what just happened to us. They they stole part of our base away from us, and they, they're pretending to care about working class people. It's like, yeah, that's what they do. They've been doing that ever since Nixon. You know Donald Trump's hero, Nixon. Nixon. <laughs> you know they've been doing that for a really long time. This is how they win, and it's how they're going to win four years from now. It's how they're going to win eight years from now. That's all they got. The stakes are are much higher, I would argue, because. You know, there's another person, and I hate to throw this out there, but another person used fake populism uh, that has some similarities and is a fascist. I mean, this is it's not just the Republicans. It's, you know, the Nazis did this. They used fake populism to yeah. build a movement and get elected in a legitimate democracy. You see it in other countries. I mean, I've been covering uh, politics overseas and seeing it in the UK. You see it in France. Yeah. You see it uh, in Spain to an extent. And, and you know, that's a... It's absolutely out of control. I mean, this is Marine Le Pen. I wouldn't be surprised if we discovered that Le Pen and Trump were exchanging notes. Oh, I mean, where did, where did Trump get his ideas, you know? But uh, it, is, it is fake populism, and it's important to understand what, what, what we mean when we say this. What populism is, is the, is the American language of class, okay? It's a language of class anger and of class resentment. And I say it's fake because I think there is a legitimate 
class grievance that a lot of people have in this country. Do you remember just a few years ago when everybody was talking about Thomas Piketty and inequality? Look, it's real. People's anger at the economic system is real and it is legitimate. And the challenge for Republicans is to somehow, and they're very good at this, by the way, somehow put themselves out in front of that anger without uh, giving the economic game away. Get out in front of that anger and then just deliver more tax cuts, more deregulation, more Trump crap, you know? And Reagan did it. Nixon did it. Uh, and who am I missing? Oh, George W. Bush did it. <laughs> Newt Gingrich did it. They are very, very good at that. This is what they do. So let's go back a little bit. You, you talk about 68 and 72. Um, in the early 80s, post-Carter, there there was a cadre, a little, a group of, of, of Democrats who, you know, there were, there were a few of them. It was, it was like separate groups, you know, the DLC, the New Democrats, yeah. all different times. Can we talk about the, the origination of what ended up becoming the DLC? Who, yeah. Oh, there's, by the way, people have done histories of this and, uh, you know, they've written books about where the Democratic Leadership Council came from, you know, and they don't exist anymore. They're, they've just, dis- the no, no, the, the deals, <laughs> the, the books exist. <laughs> they burn them. <laughs> you can get, you can get them out of any library, but uh, uh, do they have libraries? That's the question, you know, and how much longer? Anyhow, the books exist uh, and you can read up on the history of the DLC and, and many different people have written the history of the DLC and where it came from. And it's always, by the way, this is interesting, Nomi, always written as a story of triumph. Uh, and even and to this day, the biographies of Bill Clinton, the mainstream biographies of Bill Clinton are a, a tale of triumph. How this man brought this party back from the dead, the second party in our two-party system that would otherwise have died. It's so sad. And he and it's this great tale of triumph, how he uh, triangulated and moved to the center and did this and did that and was such a brilliant politician and uh, managed to revive the Democratic Party. And the story is always told in this way. Now, there's a number of really important facts that this, uh, that this way of telling the story always leave out. The first of them is that the Democratic Leadership Council, once they took over the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party lost control of Congress almost immediately in 1994. And they had, and this is fascinating point, Nomi, Democrats had held Congress with a few interruptions ever since 1930. And once the DLC gets in charge, they immediately lose Congress and uh, they've haven't gained it back since. I mean, they have a few times since 1994, but just uh, intermittently here and there. Why is that? Well, it's part of the same, the grand story that I'm telling in Listen Liberal. It is the shift of the Democratic Party to the right and away from the concerns of the working class and towards the concerns of this, you know, privileged white collar elite that lives here in Washington, D.C. This is, and this is the story. And yes, Bill Clinton got reelected, by the way, and that's always the moment of triumph. The fact that he got reelected, that's what, you can sacrifice everything. You can throw the whole economy off a cliff, which is basically what happened. As long as this guy gets reelected, you can do the, the, the greatest prison roundup in the history of this country, which he did do, right? The crime bill of 1994. You can throw welfare mothers off of, you know, out into the cold, but please get this man reelected. And he got reelected. And so therefore all of those things are okay. Not to mention, and and I would love for someone bank to do a real bank deregulation, NAFTA. NAFTA uh, you know, we wouldn't have had a housing crash if it weren't for in you know a decade later after he left office. If it weren't for his policies, yeah. I would love for you to write a book on a biography on Bill Clinton if you're not I already. Know, I'm done with this stuff forever. I oh. no, I, I really am. I it's your moment. It's like Bernie Sanders. He's been saying the same things for 30 years, and this is your yeah, moment. No, but it's but it's. And it's funny that you would say that because it is it is true. I sometimes I look at Donald Trump and the way he ran for office, and it's like 
I, I just, I couldn't believe what was happening. It's like, this guy's read my book. He's read What's the Matter with Kansas, and he's using it as a manual. You know, it's a critique of the Republican Party. He's using it as a manual. And, and, then, and then once he got into office, I wrote another book. I've, I don't know if you read it. It was called The Wrecking Crew. It's about how conservatives rule once they've pulled this stunt and they've got themselves elected president as a, or in Congress, you know, as a populist of some kind, what they do. And what they do is they... You know, they fire all the talented people in Washington. They fill agencies with hacks and cronies and people that don't believe in the mission. And they run it into the ground and the lobbyists run riot and they privatize everything and deregulate it. And it's extremely profitable. And he's doing it. I, what, what can I say, Naomi? I mean, it's like... In Puerto Rico as well. And now, yeah, and now the Democrats are living up to this. They refuse to hear. That's they, why you don't want to. That's why you don't want to write. You think that it it I, turns I into. I don't know what more to say. I mean, it's it, it, you know it's shocking and it's and it's awful watching these things play out. But th- these people are absolutely determined not to hear you know not to hear this story. Well, I think that's why you know examining the the presidency of Bill Clinton is really important. I think younger yeah. people understand that, and it was brought up during you know Secretary Clinton's election. But right, and by the way, and I read I read Hillary's um, Hillary's campaign book, which is kind of has has moments of interest, you know. But uh, I think that f- essentially Hillary Clinton, very intelligent person, by the way, is blocked from understanding what went wrong with her campaign because of this attitude towards her husband that I just described, where Bill Clinton is the great savior of the Democratic Party, <clears throat> and Bill Clinton can do no wrong, and everything he did is fantastic and wonderful. And because of that, you know, she can't see that he did things that, you know, that, 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 that have turned out badly. And uh, so, for example, welfare reform. Up until a few years ago, uh, whenever a Democrat talked about welfare reform, it was always this fantastic triumph. Well, you can't really say that anymore. It's, I mean, the, the numbers are in. <laughs> we know it's not a triumph. It's sort of the opposite. It's kind of a disaster. It's exactly what Bill Clinton's critics on the left said it would be. Or the great prison roundup of 1994, the, uh, the crime bill of 1994. They used to always talk about this as a great triumph. You know, Bill Clinton did this bipartisan thing. Or NAFTA. These were all considered triumphant. And now they don't look so good anymore. But Hillary can't accept that especially with NAFTA. She doesn't even mention NAFTA. Now, imagine writing a book about the 2016 campaign and you don't mention NAFTA. I mean, Trump literally talked about it in every speech, every speech. And Hillary Clinton was uniquely exposed to this because her name is Clinton and because you know she's, uh, you know, she's a, identified with free trade. She never mentions it. She that's, can't even talk about it. That's interesting you say this. I'm thinking about what the Democratic Party may have looked like so, so in the saying, past. Now, let me just reiterate for a second here. This idea of Bill Clinton as a kind of secular saint, as a savior of the Democratic Party, is what prevents the Democratic Party from fixing itself. And, and, then, and, and to a lesser degree, Barack Obama, too. But they can't, they can't address his failings either. And that's, that's exactly the point here, is, is, is the Democratic Party... Um, Anybody who's been on on Twitter will see that you know the Twitter wars, which I'm always engaged in. Uh, <laughs> Please, uh, but there's there's oh there's a side that's like you know the fall in line Democrats. They're they're a minority of the party. They're incredibly vocal, uh, but they pressure others to fall in line to be a loyal Democrat because that's what they think will will make us win. Now, of course, that doesn't work, and it didn't work in 2016, and we saw the convention floor. But was that? 
something that came with the DLC or did that exist before? Because it is a block. It is something, you know, a state of denial. It is their fear of Trump means, okay, we have to unify, but we're going to, you know, force you to unify with our ways. Yeah. I mean, it's just another way of saying my way or the highway. You know, it's just another way of of reasserting the control of a particular faction. The Democratic Party has had factions within it uh, for as long as they have existed. So so have the Republicans. Republicans do tend to come together a little bit better. Democrats have always been more uh, prone for infighting. But I should remind you of this. And by the way, I'm so happy that I don't participate in those Twitter wars. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's just, it's just, no, I shouldn't. And it's just, it's just another way. This is, no, no, no. This is just another way of, this is just another way for a, a faction of people to, to try to get, uh, to, to try to get their own way. If they were on the, if they were in the minority side, they would, they would have a different, you know, they would, they would be uh, saying exactly what, you know, they would be using the, the failure of the other team's candidate as evidence for why that team has to be deposed. It's just it's just a faction that wants to be in power or wants to stay in power, and they don't want you asking any questions. The, the, the people who now run the Democratic Party started as, you mentioned earlier, the Democratic Leadership Council back in the 80s and the 1990s. They were extremely critical of the, of the sort of uh, Walter Mondale uh, leadership faction of the Democratic Party at the time. Extremely critical. So how did they win... I mean, they, they basically hijacked the party. Yeah, they did. And, and I remember reading this in the book briefly. It was mentioned, there's funding from the Koch brothers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This blows my mind that the DLC that, was, that hijacked the Democratic Party was funded by the Koch brothers. Yeah, the Koch Industries. Yeah. Sit on that for a second. Well, they were funded. They, they had a lot of corporate funding. That's that's who they were. They were they were the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. That's who the they Koch were. brothers are also you, responsible. You know, it's like Bill Clinton. Who was the... Of course. Was it the uh, uh, chairman or president or whatever of the Democratic Leadership Council before he became president of the United States? And as president of the United States, he did this sort of historic – by the way, this is, I think, one of the huge turning points in Democratic Party history – the big outreach to Wall Street. That was Bill Clinton. Before that, the Democratic Party had always – and I mean always – going back to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson – been identified with hostility – to Wall Street, hostility to the banking industry. This is what Andrew Jackson's presidency and Martin Van Buren after him, this is what it was all about, okay? It was hostility to the banks. And Bill Clinton reverses that. And no, he comes, of course, he comes out of this uh, corporate-funded faction of the Democratic Party. It's not just that it's corporate. It's that it's the Koch brothers who are responsible for funding legislative races for the Republicans, which, P.S., the the Democrats have lost over 1,100 seats at this point based on this policy. The way that the Democratic Party functions is it it relies on consultants and presidential races to raise all this money from Wall Street, and they lose, and they lose. Is this just the Koch brothers? You're you're starting to figure this out. No, but I mean, I'm figuring a lot of it out. But the Koch brothers hijacked the Democratic Party is what I'm... Well, I wouldn't go that no. far. No, the Koch brothers had were one of many, and it wasn't. I think it was Koch Industries. This is something that was reported on at the time, but it wasn't uh, taken. I think I, this was in What's the Matter with Kansas, and it wasn't a. a I, I mentioned it in that, but it wasn't a, a, a really a critical part of the story because I don't know. I don't recall how much funding they gave them. They got the DLC got funding from all sorts of different corporate backers and Coke Industries was just one among many, if I, if memory serves. I don't remember exactly. And I don't know how much it was. I don't even know if it was significant. You remember that was in 2004 when I wrote that? The Koch brothers were not big 
I mean, I wrote about them at some length in What's the Matter with Kansas, but they were not big players on the national scene. They were mainly like these two guys in Wichita, you know, who I was interested in because they were in Wichita. They were not uh, uh, the, the big funders of the right at that time. Um, but yeah, that's, that, that is exactly right. That's who funded the Democratic Leadership Council, and the rest is, as they say, history. And it's been uh, uh, failure, defeat, and uh, capitulation on critical matters ever since then, if you ask someone like me. So how does the Democratic Party... Now, if you ask them, what would they say? They'd say people like me are these soft-headed losers, you know, who want to, you know, give away the Panama Canal or something like that, you know. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, they, they, it's a pretty bogus critique. The Democratic Leadership Council love to critique the kind of McGovern wing of the Democratic Party. But what's funny is that with a guy like Bill Clinton, these two things come together. I mean, Clinton also worked for McGovern. Clinton was that in that generation of, you know, uh, of young reformers coming out of the Vietnam War era. Uh, and those two sort of strains in the Democratic Party really came together under under his presidency. And the, the kind of strain that I refer to and that I hearken back to is completely gone. New Deal. You know, Roosevelt, Truman, Johnson, minus the Vietnam War. Okay, I don't like that. I'm not <laughs> Yeah, but that's my that's the democratic tradition that I that I would like to see revived. I mean, in case you were wondering. Do you ever think that the Democrats could uh wake up. I mean, after the, the weakest point since 1929, they, the DNC itself has got very little funding, um, you know, about this reform commission that, that I'm a part of. Uh, is there any path forward for them to, I mean, this is, this is a crisis yeah. and they're still in denial. I mean, this is a major crisis. It's not just that they're losing seats. You've got a fascist in the White House. Yeah. How do they revive themselves? Uh, it's tough. Um, they are, to Right now, so, so there's, there's two different groups, okay? So listen, I talk to um, uh, Democrats, uh, elected Democrats, people who deal with voters, and they know what I'm talking about, and by and large, they agree, and they understand. Not all of them, but some of them. These are practical politicians, and they see what's gone wrong, and there's lots of Democrats in places like Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois. I'm from Kansas, you know, and these people can very clearly see uh, the, the critique that I'm that I'm sharing with you right now that is it's it's very obvious to them. When you turn to the sort of uh, uh, liberal uh, journalists, uh, opinionators, uh, uh, pundits, chattering, you know, uh, intelligentsia, it's totally different. There, there is there there is no concession that that anything could have been. The way I put it is they that they are lost in a kind of hall of mirrors of their own self-righteousness. And they are in love with their own self-righteousness. And they cannot acknowledge any kind of mistake made by... I mean, and they're also... Look, they, they really, really, really admired Hillary Clinton. I voted for Hillary Clinton, but some people admired her a little more than just voting for her. And... and it's very difficult for them to acknowledge that that things that that she might have made mistakes, and I I can totally understand that, but it has to happen. And that's part of the the frustration with the loyalty, the fall in line aspect is when you're forced to fall in line, you it's almost like you blind yourself from seriously examining things that could lead to your failure. You're in the hall of mirrors, exactly, and they. they and so you know you open up the New York Times this morning, and by the way, this is another weird thing that is going on now that. I don't really understand. I mean, I, of course I understand, right? Know me, I have a theory for everything. I don't know if you're aware of this. <laughs> but I've never seen the press in this country closer to the, uh, like, uh, 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 
establishment wing of the Democratic Party than they are today. I've never seen this happen before. It's, it, we're, in, we're in new territory here. But uh, front page of the New York Times today is this big story about uh, uh, Russian ads on Facebook during the election. Did you read it? Yeah. And it's like you read the story and it's like it's basically they've got nothing. It's it's like so you know the Russians paid some, some tiny amount to like to like re effectively share a story on Facebook. It's like who cares? That's not the only reason that they're reporting on this is because this is a way of getting the Democratic Party off the hook. This is a way of getting their heroes off the hook. Uh, I said, what I said is not looking, not looking seriously at what's wrong with the Democratic Party. Now, look, Russian interference in the election is a legitimate news story. Yeah, and I, I'm fascinated by it, and I want to know more about it, but. Today's story, that was nothing. That is a nothing story. And I, by the way, I especially want to know if Trump was, uh, was in league with these people. I'm fascinated by that. That's like, that's a hell of a story. But, uh, but what they're, they're, also- they're focusing on is structural things, obvious red herrings. Uh, by the way, another one, and this is important, uh, the gerrymandering issue. This is hugely important. But this is not something that, uh, I mean, look, two can play at that game. Democrats can do it back to Republicans. There's all sorts of ways of countering that, you know, uh, and they they uh, they like to talk about the you know the different ways in which Hillary lost, the sort of uh, things that went wrong, the Comey letter, you know. There's a whole list of things, and and it is true, and these are things that went wrong for Hillary, but that doesn't. I mean, a lot of things went wrong for Trump too. I mean the. Yeah. The Access well, Hollywood tape, you know, so <laughs> David, that didn't happen. You David know? Axelrod said this right after the election, and I, I, was, I, I want to find this clip. He goes, it should have never been so close. You had a billion dollars. Exactly. That Russian ad should not have influenced yeah. Michigan. Can we go down the, down the list here? Trump has never run for public office before. He had no idea what he was doing. His campaign manager, Steve Bannon, had never managed a campaign for political office before, ever. Not for mayor, not for governor, nothing. Hillary outraised and outspent Trump two to one. And this guy walks around the country making gaffe after gaffe after gaffe. He's a fool. I mean, he's like going down the list of, of, of demographic groups in this country and alienating them one after the other, as though he has a schedule and he says, like, women, check. Handicapped people, check. Uh, Iraq War veterans, check. Vietnam War veterans, check. You know, it's insane. Hispanics, it's like, what is he thinking? And he won. Yeah, Axelrod is exactly right. He should. It should never even have been close. And Hillary has the best, by the way, let us not forget, the best advice in this city, in Washington, D.C. You go right over there to the, you know, to where her, her campaign managers live and work, and she had, and she had Eric Schmidt at her side. She had, uh, you know, the best advice money can buy. And this guy, who had never run for anything before, beat her. This is crazy. What is going on in this country? I interviewed somebody um, who I can't name, who worked uh, in high level on Hillary Clinton's campaign, and she she said to me, she goes, and I, I was a surrogate on the Bernie Sanders campaign. She said, you know, we were blown away by the ads that just citizens were doing for Bernie. She goes, one day I walked over to the tech department and it was a whole floor in in New York, in Brooklyn. She goes, I walked in there and I said, how much are we paying you guys to do your job? Why is it that a random person on the internet is doing better ads for Bernie Sanders than any of you guys and the viral videos and the, and the, the memes I mean, that is an example. And, and, and yeah. to, to go full circle, this is the party. One of my 
So I, I have a kind of a, a, a joke, but it's also kind of real about things that Hillary could have done differently in order to win. And everybody has their own pet theory. About, I mean, there's a million things, small things, like make Bernie your running mate. I mean, <laughs> that would have, would have helped a lot. I'm telling you, in Michigan and Wisconsin, would have helped a lot. Uh, but here's my, my sort of my, my pet one. And a lot of people don't realize this, but I was reading, I knew this before, but I was reading Hillary's memoir, her campaign memoir, and I was reminded of this. She's a very pious woman. She is a Bible-believing Methodist. Did you know this? And her, her, her pastor emails her every morning with a devotional verse. She uh, quotes the Bible all the time. Uh, and somehow her, and Donald Trump, as we know, is this I- incredibly vulgar, you know, offensive character who is offending, you know, Bible-believing, uh, uh, you know, church-going, evangelical Christians in every, you know, eight ways to Sunday, Right. And Hillary's campaign can't think of a way to use that fact against him. That like so. Here's my here's my my joke. So I, I grew up in Kansas City, and I, I went to high school in Kansas City, and we would play this game in high school called College Bowl. You know, where you go on TV and you answer trivia questions. And in Wichita, Kansas, they had a different version of that. They would play a game called Bible Bowl. You ever heard of this? No. This is in Bible Bowl. The, uh, it, instead of asking you trivia questions from the news or from history or something, they ask you Bible verses, and you have to jump out, jump, literally jump out of your seat and identify the Bible verse, okay? So, here, so when they're, they're thinking of the debates, right? They're thinking of, like, the first debate, I don't know, we'll have a traditional a moderator. Second debate, we'll have a town hall-style debate. The third debate, what should it be? What Hillary's team should have said is, like, Bible Bowl. She would have smoked Donald Trump at Bible Bowl or, or anything close to that. And, and okay, that's a joke, right? But any, you understand any kind of anything close to that. Like, she would have made a lot of voters in Kansas, where I'm from, so they would have been like, hmm, I don't know about this guy, Trump. I'm starting to have like warm feelings about Hillary Clinton. All it would have taken was some demonstration that she's there with them. She is culturally familiar to them. She does care about their problems. I am quite serious. That. Well, there are so many little things. Well, and that's that's actually, you know, getting getting back but, to the premise of this. Or G, that's that's the point. That. So I I'm shocked, you know, if the Democrats have lost so much in the last decade, you know, eleven hundred seats across the board, not to mention losing Congress, you know, over and over. I'm wondering if this professional class that you discuss in this book is not just the Wall Streeters, but the, 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 the ones who are tangoing with the Wall Streeters, who are encouraging yeah. the candidates to raise all this money from Wall Street because it helps them, yeah. their consultants. How they see the world and it's- but they fail. They're failing yeah. their way up. And so you have a, an ecosystem where, of course, Hillary is going to, to bring on the most experienced consultants, but really, are they good? <laughs> Yeah, you're right. And they, and, they, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail. This is a, a secondary problem that I don't go into in great length at Listen Liberal, but it's, it's out there, which is the problem of the lack of accountability. But this is, this is in American life generally. I mean, the fact that – I mean, the, the example that I do uh, uh, sort of dwell on at some length in the book is Larry Summers. How the hell did he get appointed to run President Obama's economic team? What the hell was going on there? Or Tim Geithner or, you know, the, the, the rest of these guys. It's like, wait a second. You guys just screwed up big time. Why, why are you back in the government? And the excuse was uh, if I'm going to understand the economy. Of course, he's going to choose the best and the brightest. He's going to choose the guy who was president of Harvard, Larry Summers. There is no, he is the most celebrated economist of his generation. But uh, the funny thing is, 
Naomi, and this is like, this is a problem. I don't want to get too into the sociological weeds here, but this is a problem with, um, with professionalism generally, and it's a problem with economics specifically. And I know something about this. I went to the University of Chicago for graduate school. But if you tell me you're going to go out and choose the finest professional economist in America uh, to give you economic advice on how to run the economy, I can tell you right now, I don't even know who the guy's name is. You're going to get really shitty advice. Am I allowed to say that on your program? Say whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah, because that is the nature of the economics profession. That profession, it is a it is, it's like a cartel invented to defend error and to protect folly and, and to ensure that we continue, to, that the same people get reappointed, the same people get the prizes, and the same people win this, and the same people, you know, and, and that people who they disagree with are sort of shunted aside to second, second string colleges and are never in the, in the uh, advice giving big leagues ever. That is the nature of that profession. And I can, point you to all these other different disciplines that act in exactly the same way. Well, there's a lot of research that's coming out now where they're seeing there's insider baseball, where they're gaming the system at, at a lot of these yeah. Ivy League schools to get the most you know wealthy people. We live in an era of epic fraud. And Donald Trump is, in some ways, a perfect emblem of that, a perfect symbol of that, this kind of con game world that we live in. But I think the professional class is... And I wrote an essay years ago. I was fascinated by Enron when it happened. I was I had written about Enron a number of times before the scandal broke, and I covered it. The, the the scandal. I was fascinated by this, and I wrote an essay some years later called "The Age of Enron" because I think that in some ways, the Enron is the perfect symbol and emblem, the cheating, the fraud of of the period of history that we're going through. And then, of course, you see it with the housing bubble and you see it with the you know uh, Wall Street uh, packaging up these derivative securities and selling them to retirees in Germany because they believe the bond rating agencies. And, and you know, on and on and on, deceit upon deceit and fraud upon fraud. And Trump is the sort of, and it all is based on a kind of, of, of hope and faith and, uh, you know, the, the, this, People really want to believe in somebody, and they want to believe in something. And Trump is, and and it leads to these con games one after another. And Trump is the ultimate example of that. But the professionals um, are engaged in their own version of that. I mean, let's not let's not deceive ourselves. So, uh, before we wrap up, I, I, my big question is, and I've heard this on the trail a lot when I go and interview people. They want to know who's who's the guy behind the curtain. Who's the one saying? I mean, really, I mean, I, I am fascinated with the DLC just because it seems to be the marker where this all started. But yeah, who but they're, gone now. They're, they're gone now. I mean, they're they're they shut down, but the ideas yeah, are they, there. They were badly embarrassed by the Iraq war. They had they had been big cheerleaders for the Iraq war. That didn't look so good after and a couple of years. Now Al Gore is a, you know, a populist yeah. again. Well, but this is the thing is that the, the, and, and uh, is that. Uh, the DLC, which, by the way, when I was younger, they used to always be denouncing populism. That was their big thing. Never be a populist Democrat. If you want to run for office, oh, my God, you can't be a populist. And I guess what you have to be is this kind of Michael Dukakis type, you know, technocrat, a cold, passionless technocrat, you know, because that's a real winner, Nomi. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> public really. They love that. They love that. Take the one hour I have free on Tuesday and go <laughs> vote for that guy. That's the point. Like, who's going to get the working person out of their home? To go. It's so awful. Anyhow, their their endless war against populism. But everybody knows. I mean, someone like Al Gore. As soon as they as soon as they walk away from that, of course they they go back to you know they become reasonable people again. You know, of course. So who is the person setting? I mean, is it Tom Perez? Is it Kamala Harris? Is it Hillary Clinton still? Is it Bill Clinton? I mean, who's 
there there's a message and then it gets disseminated and then all of the the what would probably deal this not DLC now, but whatever that faction of the Democratic Party, the corporate Democrats, they all seem to be. Oh, okay, no, we're not for Medicare for all. We're for Chris Murphy's bill. Oh, oh, no, we're not for this. We're you're describing groupthink, and we're we're also. Be, this is one of the things that the internet and you you mentioned Twitter, the Twitter wars earlier, is that the internet has made possible these kind of leaps and bounds in groupthink that were unknown uh, in an earlier age, and uh, it, it fascinates me so. Look, another way of describing groupthink is to say that these people, there's no individual responsible for this, and there's not even any individual organization. The Dem- as, as you mentioned, the Democratic Leadership Council is gone, but there is a social class, and that class tends to be, uh, you know, uh, I live in Bethesda, Maryland. That class is heavily concentrated in a place like Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, everybody knows everybody else. They all read the same newspaper. They all read the same blogs. Uh, nobody reads blogs anymore. They read the same magazines online. They, uh, there's incredible groupthink within this class, uh, but it's, it's in the nature of a social class that they all see the world in the same way. They have the same assumptions. They make their money from the same, in, the, in the same way. They all go to the same kind of schools. They, learn, they have the same accent. By the way, regional accents are becoming class accents. Uh, this is really who they are. It, by the way, Naomi, the, this is, I mean, this is, I'll tell you the entire secret of my stupid career as a journalism for what it's worth is to look at class. Americans hate to talk about social class and they don't like to acknowledge that it exists and that it's meaningful in any way. And they'll talk about almost any other demographic category you care to mention, but they won't talk about class. But once you factor that in, uh, all sorts of things become very, very clear. And the, the fact that the Democratic Party does answer to a class has embraced the agenda of a class and really is a class party in the 19th century sense. Once you understand that, that, that's, that they're a class party, and it's, just, it's not the working class, <laughs> it's the professional class, everything snaps into place and the Democratic Party makes perfect sense. And, and when you see Bernie Sanders endorsing candidates in the South that are black populists talking about class and race and how they're interconnected yeah. the way that MLK did and, and so many others did, yeah. um, you know, I think that it's, it's bursting their bubble, you know, the that's theories right. that they have. That's, that's, and that's, you're absolutely right about that. And I, I think we should probably end this on yes. some kind of note of hope. Good, good hope. No, no, <laughs> uh, and, and, and that is just this, that there are lots and lots and lots of good uh, uh, working class uh, oriented Democrats still out there, lots and lots and lots of them uh, in from the part of the world that I come from, from the Midwest, from the South, from the Northeast, from all over this country. And they know that what you and I are saying is correct and is true. And that is the direction that the Democratic Party has to go in. And you, what you just described is absolutely true. Uh, and the, we know that there's uh, plenty of these Democrats out there. And I think that they have a very good chance of unseating the corporate faction of the Democratic Party. I think they have a very good chance of it. The, my, my only question then is, what's going to happen to this sort of the, the pundit class of this country once the, <laughs> if the Democratic Party leaves them behind? I mean, they're going to be so sad, Nomi. They'll, they'll get, they'll, they'll get contracts. I mean, my favorite part of this is Hillary Clinton suffers the worst defeat in history. And let's take... Uh, including well, myself. Right. Yeah. It's so startling. But they take all of her former staff that failed the election for her and gave them contracts on MSNBC, CNN, <laughs> and even Fox <laughs> News, yeah, well, yeah, and then well, didn't give not not yeah. one Bernie Sanders person. Yeah. It's well, cool. there you go. I mean, I, I, I look, I write I write for foreign publications only these days. You know that, right? The Guardian and Le Monde Diplomatique. 
And there you go. That's France. Yeah. That's France. Yeah. <laughs> Melanchon. <laughs> All right. On that note, um, fantastic book if you haven't read it yet. Listen, Liberal, Thomas Frank. So I, I was like kind of nervous about this. I hashtagged icon on my Twitter feed because... What's that mean? Icon. Like you're an icon. Oh, that's Yeah. No, I mean, I, I read you in college and, you know, all the way to today. So big deal. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure.